I want you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. It's one of the most iconic chapters in all of Scripture, the Bible. Uh, I have it memorized, so do many of you. Let's read four verses. And I love to hear those pages turning. You're not going to make it through this Old Testament series without a Bible. Uh, I see some of you are buying the ESV, which is just Genesis. That's cool. You can circle. You can underline. Now the Lord had said to Abram, I'll call him Abraham. God will change his name in chapter 15. And from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 4 says, Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So this is the call of Abraham. It's also the establishment of the nation of Israel. Notice the first time a nation is mentioned here. Uh, it's a nation in accordance with land. So, so we're going to talk about calling. We're going to talk about Israel. And remember last week when we talked about the flood, I told you it was like my sweet spot. Like I'm a student of prophecy. I'm a student of the flood, geology, evolutional. Well, this is another one of my sweet spots. I've, I've been studying calling for 30-some years. It's why I read biographies. It's why we have so many guest speakers here. I am just uh, overwhelmed how God can get a human being from A to B, how God accomplishes his work. I mean, I, I'm, it never gets old to me. So I've been studying this for a long time. I'm also fascinated about the nation of Israel. So we've hit another one of my sweet spots, but don't be impressed, all right? I'm out of sweet spots for a while. But I, I want you all to come back, so we'll kind of muddle through the rest of this together. Um, remember, we've looked at the downward spiral of sin for 11 chapters. Sin, sin is so grievous that God destroys the world. But by grace, he finds Noah, and God starts over again. He tells Noah, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Uh, uh, but then we get to the Tower of Babel, and now man's going to make a name for himself. And, and God knows man, uh, if God doesn't do something, is going to destroy himself, so God changes language. Anthropologists have no idea, no understanding, and if they do... Uh, not, not to belittle anybody, but the arguments are really weak, why we speak different languages. But God wants to begin again. And this time God will begin with one man, a seed that will become a nation. Notice all the families. Every, everybody's involved here. But it starts with Abraham and it starts with this nation. Uh, I believe, and I think there's a lot of people that could back me up, Abraham Joshua Heschel, one of the great theologians of the 20th century, and I can list men. Uh, one of the great proofs for God and that the Bible is true is the Jew and the nation of Israel. Google her. Look on a map. Turn on the TV. It's an election cycle. You're hearing about Jerusalem. You're hearing about Israel. This is a nation that went out for 1,900 years, came back. No other nation's ever gone and come back. They speak Hebrew and have all their own nationalism like the nation of Israel. You live in a time few have ever seen. Jesus said in Matthew 24 when asked what would be the last of the last days, i.e. his second coming, he said when the fig tree blossoms, when you see the fig tree blossom, for anyone who was alive in 1948, you saw it. We can see the remnant of it. 
Know that it's near at the very doors. He said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you need a Jerusalem, first of all, which is now, it's always been the capital of Israel. President Trump moved it there, but every other embassy was already there. Uh, there's a T-shirt uh, that you'll see if you come to Israel with us, and it's in jest, right? The, the Israelis, it's in jest. Uh, put it up on the screen. It has all the nations and their status today. Uh, and they're all out of existence. Um, and there's a little caption that says, the Jewish people, the smallest of nations, but with a friend in high places, be nice. Okay? And that's in jest, but, but guess what? A lot of it is true. Um, one of the problems we have is politics, uh, arguments over ethnicity, and tons of misinformation has clouded this issue. Uh, the media is a big part of it. I know we're picking on the media a lot these days, but they deserve it, okay? So, um, so we're going to go through all this, but I want to start, I was impressed by God to start with calling, because this is where you all live. And I think I can help somebody today. Uh, like I said, I've been a student of calling my entire life. I feel like I've walked out my calling and uh, I think I can help some of you today. The first thing I want to say before I get into the guts of this is, is this. There is a difference between specific calling and general calling. And one of the traps is we get enamored with specific calling. Like, what's God called me to do? And we forget that when we wake up in the morning every day, we have a general calling. Peter writes this in 1 Peter, where he says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind... And rest your hope fully upon the grace that has been brought to you as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to your former lust, the old life, but as he who has called you is holy, you be holy in all your conduct. So every day, as we look in the mirror, as we get out of bed, we are, we are conforming into the image of Christ. That's our calling. That's what I need to remember every single day. I'm trying to be more like Christ, less like Bob Gaglia. But then there is a specific calling God has for everybody. For Noah, it was build an ark. For Abraham, it started a nation. Uh, some people, it's ministry. Some people, it's the marketplace. Uh, I talked about biographies. One of the people I'll be talking about is Scott Harrison, who started Charity Water. Scott has spoken from this stage. He leads one of the most stellar organizations, relief efforts in the world. And, and that's a specific calling. There's nowhere in the Bible that says bring clean water to impoverished countries. There's nowhere in the Bible that says start a church in Delaware County. So when we get into a specific calling, um, there's kind of an unseen roadmap we have to follow. And that's what I want to walk you through very quickly. I'm going to tell you the four things I know about calling. I could teach a Calvary campus on this. Very briefly, I'm going to walk you through a few things. If something helps, great. The first thing sounds elementary. We've got to remember it. That God longs to do a work in this world, and when God longs to do a work, it's always through people. It's always through people. You can't find one thing in the Bible that God has done where he didn't use the human instrument. Even writing the Bible, the most holy thing that we have, God used human beings. God longs to use us. Now, he could get a lot less trouble out of angels, I'm sure, but he uses us. So God has this wonderful pushback, and the Bible says the eyes of the Lord look to and fro. Think about this, to see who he can use. Sometimes we think, you know, we're looking uh, for something to do. God's looking for you. It's a beautiful thing. 
And so his eyes are, are going back to and fro. He's looking for people he can use. And what God generally does, I don't say it's all the time, is he finds a man or a woman, singular. Now, I know I'll get pushed back because a lot of what you're learning in the corporate world and even in the church is the power of teams, right? Teams are everything today. And I get it. I played college sports. Been a part of teams all my life. But the New Testament concept is the clearest where Paul says we are the body of Christ, right? Every joint supplies. So you know when the body's working well, it's, it's wonderful, right? When one little part of the body's out of whack, the whole thing's out of whack. So I remember years ago, I had bought a little pop-up camper and uh, preached three services here and we were going to leave for Lancaster and rigged up the camper, get there, set it up, sweating, it's like 95 degrees and my son wants to play, pick up basketball, there's a lot of guys on the court. So I go there and I think 30 seconds into the game, the ball hits my pinky and it's like going the other way like an L, like you want to throw up in your mouth if you saw it. Um, I'm in so much pain. I'm like, somebody pull my finger. Nobody would. So they took me to the camp nurse. And I'm like, you got to pull this. And she's pulling and, and, and she's like, I can't do it. So she sends me to the hospital, right? Now I'm drenched in sweat. Now it's cold. I've got the chills. The doctor walks in. He looks at it. He goes, how much pain can you endure? I'm like, how long is this going to be? He said, two seconds. I'm like, do it. He pulls, I see stars, doesn't work. He goes, you're not going to believe this, but I've got to give you an injection. I've got to numb your hand. It's going to be more painful than what I just did. So he puts it right in between my joint. And I get numb, and 20 minutes go by, and i got to tell you, in a modern world, he wheels in this device that looked like it came from the Civil War. <laughs> Do you ever see the hangman apparatus? has a little thing you put your finger in, and he and the nurse get on the other side and jerk it down, and I hear like a pop, and it's over. And for the next three days on the trip, I, I mean, I was in pain, a little pinky. In the quarantine, when I got over COVID, I got a toothache for 10 days. So uh, my, my kids are showing me all these people are cooking and, and, and redoing their home and gardening and I have COVID and then one little tooth. Like, you see the idea when one part of the body's out of whack? But when, when the whole body's working well, it's wonderful. Here's the point I want to make about the gifts in the body of Christ. There's a Romans 12, 9 gift called leadership. It's not the supreme gift. It's not better than any other gift. Here's what leadership does. The book of Romans says, if you have that gift, lead with all diligence. Here's why. A lot is hanging in the balance. Leaders see farther than anyone else sees. Leadership is, is the engine that pulls the train, guys. Leadership catalyzes all the other gifts. I mentioned Scott Harrison. So here's a guy with a backstory. He's a nightclub operator. He's living what he thinks is the good life, he's making money, he's, um, he's known, um, you know, he's attractive, he's got it all going, right? Through a series of events, he gets saved, he goes on mercy ships, he finds out that one of the things that the world lacks is clean drinking water, and he starts charity water. One of the amazing things about the book is how people would leave their day jobs at like J.P. Morgan, like six-figure type jobs, and then work at Scott's apartment all night, coding and writing donor letters and all. 
So, so God didn't call a team. He called Scott, and then he put a team around Scott. So that's what the gift of leadership does. Uh, A.W. Tozer, I think, said it best. He said, a true and safe leader is likely to be one who has no desire to lead, but is forced into the position by the impress of the Holy Spirit and the external situation in Moses and David. You can look at all the Old Testament prophets. He said, I can fairly say that most of these people were commissioned by the Lord of the church to fill a position they had little heart for. You know, Moses, you know, really had no interest in letting the people go. Uh, Jonah had no interest in going to Nineveh. Uh, Nehemiah was very comfortable in Persia. He had no inkling to go back and build a wall. The press came from God. So God raises up man. Now, the second thing I know about calling is when God raises up a man, he equips the man. And usually what that man or woman is equipped with is vision. Vision. Vision is a preferred picture of the future. It's, it's something preferable. In God's mind, there would be a nation that would be a model to all other nations. That was God's preferred picture of the future, the new community. Um, vision is an overused word in our day, but there's power in vision. So uh, when I worked at the Boeing company, it was pre-computer. No computers on our desks. I told my kids that one day. They're like, what'd you do? You know, I'm like, we sent a man to the moon without a computer on a desk. But Bill Gates comes along and he says, I have a vision to put a computer on every desk. Becomes the richest man in the world. Uh, Steve Jobs outdid him. He said, I'm going to put a computer in your pocket. And lo and behold, that's what happened. Uh, remember that kind of infamous, uh, I used to love those Steve Jobs launches, right? Remember the time he had the, uh, the iPad or iPod mini? And he said, you know, in your jeans, that little pocket, you never knew what it was for? Well, now you know. You're going to put this little postage stamp device that has 10,000 songs. That was the power of vision. Now Elon Musk is going to take us to the moon and beyond, right? So God knows where we're going. But we're not talking about a man-centered vision. We're talking about a God-centered vision. What God drops into the heart of believers is a God-honoring vision of what he wants to do. And then it lines up with our gifts and talents, and the world has changed. Now, if we can't find in the Bible what we're called to do, how do we find it? Well, look at verse 1. God had said to Abraham. When Abraham leaves, it says, so he departed as the Lord had spoken to him. If you've learned anything from the Old Testament so far, is we serve a God who speaks. When God speaks, things happen. The world's created. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 says that the, the God spoke to the fathers through the prophets, but in these last days he spoke to his son. Jesus is the final revelation. That doesn't mean God has stopped speaking. For you, those of you who are newer to the faith, sometimes you'll be hanging around Christians maybe at the table and you hear somebody say, you know, God told me. Like God told me to go to Westchester. God told me to marry this dude, you know, whatever. And you're like, these people are weird. Like how come they're hearing God and I don't hear God? Well, it's not an audible voice. It's the still, small voice of God. What they've learned to do is hear impressions or leanings or promptings or what you call nudgings from God, right? Like, I just had this impression that God wants me to do this. So starting a church in Delaware County was an impression that we had. And then God proved it out. Uh, in the Q&A last week, I was all read up, right? I thought, wow, people are going to try and ask me these questions about 
cubic feet of the ark and geology and, you know, I'm reading all this stuff. And a lady said, you know, you talked about Led Zeppelin a couple of weeks ago and the fallen angel and the swan song label. What's that all about? And I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah, I got to remember, this is where people live. And um, I was so excited to tell her, I said, you know, I was a young believer and I would drive all the way to church listening to rock music and all the way home. Never thought anything of it. And, and in a series of events, God began to deal with me on that. And uh, I was going to a Van Halen concert. I had bought tickets for this before I became a Christian. And I went to that concert. And a lot of the old man was coming back, right? But the final song, if you know anything about Van Halen, is they have a song called Running with the Devil. And I looked around the arena and 18,000 people with their fists in their hand are singing Running with the Devil. Now, they, they have no idea what they're doing. But God spoke to me in that snapshot and said, this is the world I want you to walk away from. And the, and the reason I brought it up to that woman was because if somebody told me from a pulpit not to listen to Van Halen, it would have been legalism. But because God spoke to me, like Abraham, I obeyed. Like Paul, you know, when I was a child, I did childish things, and then I put childish things away. So, so this is the walk of faith. This is the, the life of faith. Campbell Morgan calls it the disturbing voice of God. Do you know why he does that? Because God has a way of speaking disequilibrium into our lives. He takes a life that's comfortable, predictive, and he messes around with things. He really does. Uh, and you look and you say, well, why does God do this? Yeah, I gotta leave family, I gotta leave this, I gotta leave that. And, and of course, there's a side of the church that makes God out to be a bad guy. Uh, can you look at the text one more time? Let's see if this is a fair exchange. Okay, leave what you know, and here's what I'm going to do. First of all, I'm going to make your name great. Like 4,000 years from now, a third of the world's population will reference their faith back to you. Uh, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. Uh, you're going to bless all the earth. See, God will never be our debtor. God is asking us to exchange because he wants to give us something more grand, right? Uh, there's a word that gets repeated five times in verses two and three. Do you know what it is? Blessing, right? So there, there's people that say, don't read the Old Testament because that's a mean God. You have to look at Jesus. So we've already seen the good God of Genesis, right? It was good, it was good, it was good. Now you're looking at a blessing God. Not a cursing God, a blessing God. A God that longs to bless. This is the God that Jesus knew about in the temple when he was 12 years old. So I want to ask you a couple questions. What's God speaking to you these days? Are you listening? Is there a disturbing voice speaking to you? Is God dealing with lifestyle changes, uh, career changes? Can you look in the rearview mirror and see the blessing God has brought on your life when you've walked with him? If this is all new to you, or even if you want like a recap, there's a wonderful book out. It's probably the best in class by Dallas Willard called Hearing God. I highly recommend it. Third thing I know about calling is to go up, you have to give up. Now, I'm pretty sure I stole that from John Maxwell. I have to go back and look. Uh, if we were in the academic world, this would be plagiarism. In the church, it's just research, so... Uh, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, I wish it were another way, right? I wish God would have come to me in my 20s and said, look, leave your job, leave everything you know, 
and I'm going to give you 25 acres in Chad's Ford. You're going to build this wonderful church, and you're going to have this great staff, and you're going to go on mission trips, and 1,500 people are going to get baptized, and, you know, uh, all right, God, where, I'll sign on the dotted line. We all would, right? But God doesn't do that. Um, basically, God says, leave, and then he gives no details. Right? He doesn't tell us where it is, how it is. And, and again, think about Abraham. This guy has 318 trained servants. He's rich in livestock and possessions. He's an urban dweller. He lives in the most prestigious, advanced society of that time. He lives near the Euphrates River. They have modern medicine, modern, modern, modern mathematics. They even had beer for crying out loud. This guy sat around drinking craft beer, um, looking at high rises. Like he's an urban dweller. God said, no, you're going to go to Canaan. This is a suicide mission. And then he's got to tell his wife, hey, honey, pack everything up. Kind of like the hillbillies. We're, we're getting out of here. We're going to a place. Where are we going? I don't know. Wives aren't into that kind of information, right? They want to know details. These are real people. The exchange is that God's always going to do something beyond anything you've planned. Hebrews 11.8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place to which he would receive the promise. And he went out not knowing where he was going. He didn't know the outcome. All he had was a promise. It's all we really have. Scott Iverson never knew what charity water would become. I never knew what this church would become. I think of all that I would have missed. And so the great exchange is, God's like, look, I'm going to do something far beyond anything you ever thought. Uh, the problem is, look at the words in Hebrews 11.8. Obeyed, faith, and waiting. We're not good at any three of those. That's the problem. We're not good at waiting, we're not good at obeying, and we're not good at walking by faith. We want to see it all. So young kids come here and they see this and they think, well, uh, I would do this and I would do that and I would change this and that. And, and, and they have no idea of the day of small things. Now, here's the beautiful thing. God calls Abraham at 75 years old. I'm one of those people when I read the Bible, like, why do we need that information? Why do I need to know Abraham 75? Well, part of it is because God's going to say the air has to come from your body. So God's trying to show whatever's done here is by my spirit, not by your methodology. But I'm also enamored with the idea that God's not done with us. If you're not dead, he's not done. Now, does God just call old people? No, because an angel would appear to a 16-year-old girl and say, you are highly favored among heaven, and you will bring forth a son, and we'll call his name Emmanuel. Paul was told by, uh, excuse me, Timothy was told by Paul, don't let anyone despise your youth. God uses young and old. What I'm trying to say is there's a cost. Jesus said there's no one who's given up houses and lands and family who God won't, you know, give back in this life and in the life to come. Fourth thing I know about calling, it's not the final thing, it's just I'm giving you these four for some reason. There's no turning back. This is weird. Uh, there's probably five other things I could have done or would have wanted to do with my life. But I couldn't. There's days when I look at my calling and I'm miserable. There's days I turn from my calling and I'm miserable. Uh, I know this. It's my calling. I was made to do this. Calling can be a lonely place at times. You think, well, how can it be lonely? You've got all these people in the church. You've got a staff. Um, calling's a lonely place because you're the carrier of the vision. 
Abraham tells Sarah, no, the heir's going to come from our body. And she's like, you're 80 years old, Abraham. Are you kidding? Um, Lot is a problem. Uh, Jesus in John 66, everybody leaves. He tells his disciples, are you guys leaving? The question in this area is, do you know your calling? Now, we know our general calling. Do you know your specific calling? Um, you might not know it yet. I, I would fast and pray about it. Uh, Brad Lominick and H3 Leadership said every leader, no matter how young or old or accomplished, should regularly reflect on his or her calling. Now, Brad makes it really clear that your calling is your purpose. It's your guiding light. It's a string that connects all the dots so others can be fulfilled. Now, don't mix calling with your job. Some people, their job is their calling. Uh, let's say you drive for Greyhound Bus. Well, that's your job. You put food on the table. That was, I work for the Boeing Company, right? My dad was a landscaper. But there's something to live out. There's a way we were made. Uh, I just ran into Reggie. Reggie's been in our church forever, and he pointed at one of the ladies who was sitting at a kiosk for candy that we're collecting for trunk or treat, and he said, that woman is why I passed high school mathematics. Some people are wired to do that. That's their calling. Some of it's marketplace. Some of it's ministry. Brad makes a big distinction between your calling and your assignment. So I'm called to lead and teach. Uh, right now my assignment is Calvary Chapel, Delaware County. So your calling and your assignment are two different things. Do you know your calling? Have you reflected on it? If you want to read about calling, I still think Os Guinness, The Call, is the best book I've ever written. So what was Abraham called to do? He was called to plant the seed of a nation. This is a high calling. Notice the words used here, land and nation, right in the same verse. Nations have land, right? That's bigger than you think. Uh, sometimes we think, well, this people group was here first. Oh, no, there's been land rights. I'll show you in a few minutes for thousands of years. Uh, a nation, this is from Yoram Hazani, The Virtue of Nationalism. A nation is tribes. Most people were tribal. And then um, once the tribes got large enough, if they had a common language, religion, and a past history, uh, they would act as a, as a body for the common good and defend their nationalism, right? So... So Israel was called to be a nation. Now, we talked about land. If you go just three chapters over, chapter 15, there's actually a title deed to this land. In verse 18, on the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt, that's the Nile, to the great river, the Euphrates. And he goes on and names all the territory they would take. Uh, I don't know if most of you know this, the Middle East that you see today is a creation of modern man in the 20th century. Uh, there was never any such nation as Syria or Jordan or Iran or Iraq. They never existed in history. That was carved up by Europeans. The problem is the Europeans didn't know a lot about Islam. They didn't know about Shiite Muslims. And, and so they, they just made these rogue dividing lines. And that's caused all the problems we see today. People that live in Iran are Persians. They're not Arab. Neither are the Egyptians. They're Egyptian. 
Uh, the Arabs come mainly from Saudi Arabia, and we'll get into that in a few minutes. So, so, so you're looking at a very interesting picture when you talk about the Middle East. This title deed, by the way, would have been all of Lebanon, all of what we know as Jordan, all that we would have known as Syria today. God said, this is the land. Now, I'm going to put a little disequilibrium in your life for a few minutes. Please don't quote me out of context. Uh, every time election season comes, we like to quote this verse. My people who are called by my name, you, you all know this, humble themselves and pray, I will hear and I will heal their land. Right? Now, in context, that principle is true. Right? I, I really believe if, if a group of people humble themselves, I, I think God will come and heal your house. He'll come and heal your land. I also believe if no one prays, God will come and heal your land. Because nobody in Nineveh knew God and he sent Jonah. Well, that's a whole other story. That's the goodness of God. That's the sovereignty of God. Can I ask you a question? When the Bible says, if my people call on me, I'm going to pray, who's God talking about? It's talking about the Jews. And the land is always Israel. Now, as Americans, you know, we have a high view of America, and we should. It's one of the greatest nations ever been. It's a guiding light. This is why everybody wants to come here. It's an idea. I, I get all that. I love the country as much as you do. We have mistakes in our past, but we're still the greatest thing going, in my opinion. America is not a Christian nation. Only people can be Christians. There's nowhere in the Bible where a nation can be Christian. In fact, in Revelation 4, it says around the throne of God was every tongue, kindred, nation, and tribe. Uh, this whole idea of a holy Roman Empire, a holy uh, whatever set of nations is not anywhere in the Bible. Some people want to know, why in the world would God choose one people group over another? Well, God had to start somewhere. And even in the Bible, God says, look, don't, don't get proud. I didn't choose you, you were the greatest. I chose you because you're the least. So that when I do what I want to do, my glory might come out. God had to start somewhere, and remember this, um, through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Israel was never to be an imperialistic nation like the nations that surrounded her. What she was going to export was the word of God, prayer, and ultimately Jesus Christ. That's what it was all about, this new model community. All the nations will be blessed. The Jews aren't better than anybody else. If all this is giving you disequilibrium, look at Psalm 147.20. It says, God declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his judgment to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. No other nation. Israel, the people of the land, mentioned 2,500 times in the Bible. If you add the word the Jews, another 1,000 times. Jerusalem mentioned 500 times, not once in the Quran. Never mentioned Psalm 132, 13, the Lord has chosen Zion. That's another name for Jerusalem. He has made it his habitation. Uh, in other words, God said, this is where I live. Hence, we call it the Holy Land. While we're talking about land, I want to talk to you about Zionism, because you'll hear this argument. Theodore Herzl is the father of Zionism. Zionism is the political movement that led to the establishment in 1948 of the nation of Israel. Herzl... Uh, for a long time, was having Zionist Congress in Europe and such. And it was really the Holocaust that moved the ball up the field, right? 
Here's what you need to know. When David Ben-Gurion stands up and says, this nation shall be called Israel, there's a picture behind him. That's Theodore Herzl. Do you know Herzl never, ever believed that the place the Jews should go was Israel? Uh, they were looking at Uganda. They thought South America was a better place. It was safer. It was actually Christians that came along and said, no, we think you guys should go back to the land. I, I love when we're in Israel, my, my Jewish guy, Daniel, who I've known for 20 years, if we have a long bus ride, he pulls down a map and he walks everybody through political history. And somebody always raises their hand and says, oh, wait a second, Dan, you're talking about all this politics. Uh, what about... Uh, what about God? Wasn't God in this? And then Daniel, he, he's not a believer, he just shrugs his shoulders and goes, yeah, it was both, you know? We're like, yeah, well, God uses people is what he's saying. When the Bible talks about nations, it calls them beasts. Daniel, right? A, a bear, a lion, uh, winged animals, they got you know, devouring. These are faceless entities. The nations that surrounded Egypt that were foretold in Daniel, Egypt, Greece, Persia, Rome, Babylon, and a rebuilt European, some kind of community in the last days were all imperialistic, world-dominating empires. What that means is, rather than be nationalistic, they wanted to take over the world. This is fascinating because you and I live in the day of the New World Order. And global alliance, you know, we hear these words tossed around. Those are imperialistic words. Stalin, Mussolini, Napoleon, all look. Uh, look, the woman's been trying to ride the beast through all of history. This is Satan's ultimate plan. Uh, England, United States, to some degree, were imperialistic at, at times with colonization and so forth. Israel's influence was to bless all the families of the earth. Hence Thomas Cahill's subtitle in The Gift of the Jews, How a Tribe of Desert Nomads Changed the Way Everybody Thinks and Feels. Now, here's a question everybody should ask. Did God make good on his promise to Abraham? Because, because that has a lot of bearing on, on you and me because God's made promises to us. Can we keep God at his word? We can look at Abraham. Did God keep his word to Abraham? Well, God said, Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. That happened. Third of the world uh, traces their faith back to Abraham. Uh, I will make of you a great nation. Now, the chosen people. You know the Jews actually have this prayer. God, you chose us. Can you go choose somebody else now? For all they've been through, they're like, can, can you choose somebody else? God said, look, if I... If I gather them, I'll scatter them. God, God has dealt with his people. 1948, Israel came back into the land. Uh, Daniel Glider has written a book called The Israel Test. He asserts that Israel went from 100 venture capital startups in 1991 to 802,000. During the same time period, Israel's revenues and in information technology rose from $1.6 billion to $12.5 billion. This is a quote. With 70% of its growth attributable to high-tech ventures, by this measure, Israel went in 20 years from least among all industrialized countries, get this, to lead the world. Right now, they're the Silicon Valley of the East, a nation the size of New Jersey. 
In the last 20 years, they've entered film. Look at Netflix. A lot of these series are Israeli. Uh, they lead the world in water, in conservation, and uh, uh, desalinization. Uh, there's another book called Human Accomplishment. Uh, they did a, a weird calculus of, of a database of historians. The Jews, listen to this, the Jews who are three-tenths of one percent, not three-tenths, they're three-tenths of one percent of world population. And yet for the first half of the 20th century, despite pervasive and continuing social discrimination against Jews throughout the Western world, despite the retraction of legal rights and a Holocaust, Jews won 14% of Nobel Peace Prizes in literature, chemistry, physics, medicine. In the second half of the 20th century, when Nobel Prizes began to award it to people all over the world, that figure jumped to 29%. And so far in the 21st century, it's up to 32%. And you can look at statistic after statistic. It makes no sense. By the way, another proof for the existence of God is anti-Semitism. Why would this small group of people who really had no intention of ever dominating other nations be as persecuted as they are? I don't think a lot of you know this. Go back and look at population records in the Middle East. Jews in the millions lived in Saudi Arabia, in Persia, in Lebanon, in Syria. They lived all over the world. They lived all over Europe. The brain power of Russia came from Jews, and they had no desire to leave. European Jews loved Europe. But God said, if I scatter you, I'll regather you. And so you are living through, I mean, a Bible in the newspaper, literally. I think God may do on his claim. And by the way, when those Jews left those countries, they lost all their property, all their possessions, all their land. It's one of the greatest pilferings in the history of the world. And we've watched it all. Again, it's like an open Bible. Anti-Semitism right now is the highest it's ever been in Europe. That's not my opinion. You can go out and read your own information. That any time since the Holocaust, Satan wants to devour Israel and all that it produces. And God said, Abraham, this is the seed. And, and we know now this would bring forth Christ. Think about all that you do, all the Bible studies we have. We read scripture. Do, do you understand that do you understand when the New Testament went out to the nations? There were some people who thought God was done with Israel. We call it amillennialism. There's a lot of things you can call it, which is really weird because if you believe that, if you think, if you think the church replaced Israel, what you're saying is God won't bless Israel. He's actually just going to curse her. That's what you're really saying if you believe that. But in a weird twist, the New Testament believers went out with 39 books of the Old Testament attached. And a worldview emerged. On the back of telling people about Jesus came these 39 books. And a worldview that has produced much of what we see today. When you sit in a Bible study and you talk about the Ten Commandments and all that, that's all on the back of this vision. A new community. Blessing all the families of the earth. We're blessed because of Abraham. Now, I'd love to tell you Abraham got a calling and he was a pillar of righteousness and he walked through it perfectly. But I can't. In fact, he's a lot like you and me. God said, Abraham, let's go on a vision walk. 
See these stars in heaven? If you can count them, and like the sand on the seashore, that will be the size of your inheritance. Now this is weird because uh, scientists tell us back in this time they believed there were about 250 stars. They were fixed. But God correlates stars in heaven to sand. You know, I actually, I actually read a book on sand. Can you believe that? Uh, sand's used to make concrete, and of course, the, the agenda of this book was we're running out of sand, of course. But anyway, um, I actually was going to give you how much sand there was in the world, right? There's an equation. It's a lot. And what the Bible's saying is the number of stars is uncountable just like sand. The Bible knew that way ahead of time. Uh, so Abraham and Sarah have a problem, right? They're old. God tells them to go to Canaan. They go there. They don't like it. They go to Egypt. And Abraham has this wonderful plan. Look, I know you're 80 years old, but you're still pretty hot. When we get down there, Pharaoh's going to want to take you his, uh, into his harem. And here's what you're going to do. Tell him you're my sister. And he goes through that whole ordeal. And finally, Pharaoh finds out. And now we got Pharaoh lecturing Abraham, the man of God, on ethics. But this is what we all do. We take matters in our own hands. It's not only Abraham, it's Sarah. She looks at Abraham and says, Abraham, um, you know, the air is supposed to come from my body. Remember, she laughed. She goes, I got a better idea. Hagar is one of your servants. She's a little younger than I am. Why don't you sleep with her? And that'll produce an heir. Do you ever notice how passive uh, Abraham was in that deal? He kind of never balked at that. Oh, okay, honey, I think you're, you're usually right. We'll, we'll go along with that. That produces Ishmael. And from what we know about the God of the Old Testament, you would think that God would curse Ishmael because he's not the son of promise. God doesn't do that. Because God's a blessing God, in chapter 16, verse 11, he said, Behold, you are with child. This is the angel of the Lord, probably Jesus Christ. And you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. That's not a curse. God's looking out through history and saying, this is what he'll be. God didn't call him to be that. He said, you will be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. Believe it or not, the Arab world has more resources, more land. If they ever came together, they could probably take over the world. But God said, I'll make Ishmael a great nation, and he has Later, when Isaac comes along, uh, Sarah wants to get rid of Hagar. And God says, no, I won't allow it. So this idea that God chooses favorites doesn't exist. God works despite our inadequacies. Now, Abraham's learning. This is the last thing I'll share with you. There's seven appearances where God comes to Abraham, and he's growing, he's learning, just like all of us. Uh, I love this scene that happens where... Uh, he and his nephew Locke come into the land, right? You ever have like one piece of chocolate cake left and you got to split it with someone you always tell them you, you cut it, right? And everybody cuts it down the middle because what are you going to do, right? Even though we probably want more. Well, Lot, Lot looks at the land near Sodom and he's like, this is great land and he takes the best. Gets him in trouble. These kings come, they raid, they take a spoil, they take Lot. Abraham has to go and rescue him. Abraham takes 318 of his trained servants. He rescues Abraham. 
In chapter 14, verse 18, it says, Melchizedek, this is a king of Salem, may have been Jerusalem, city of peace, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of most high God. Now, that's strange. Kings and priests never mixed. And he said, blessed be Abraham of the most high God, professor of heaven and earth, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies in your hand. And it said, Abraham gave him a tithe of all. Now this other king comes along, he says, Abraham, look, take whatever you want. This is the way of the world. You're, 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 you're an amazing man, and men with power keep what they want. They cut inside deals. Instead, Abraham gives this man a tithe. First time the word tithe appears in the Bible. It means a tenth. It means off the top. What Abraham's learning is that he can be generous because there's a God that resupplies. That he doesn't have to withhold because in a world of scarcity, God will continue to give. And of course, this has come all the way down into our day. And I, I love how this plays out. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, give the persons, take the goods for yourself. Abraham said to the king, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high. He possesses heaven and earth. That I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap. That I will not take anything that is yours, lest you say, I made Abraham rich. Abraham said, I'm tired of taking matters into my own hand. I want to look around one day and say, the Lord has blessed me. Now, maybe the Lord can use other people. And the Bible says the wealth of the unrighteous laid up for the just. I get all that. But Abraham's saying, I'm going to do the right thing. And he blesses God, and God blesses him. The problem is, God's going to ask for more than a tithe. Genesis 22, God's going to say, Abraham, take thy son, thy only son, the son that thou lovest, and take him to a place and offer him there as a sacrifice. It's the first time love appears in the Bible. We'll spend all next week on this, what that sacrifice meant, what it foretold, what it means to you and me. But I want to end on the election. I told you I would talk about the election uh, we don't endorse candidates. We think you guys are smart enough to make up your own mind. But because we're here talking about nations, you know, I, I think what I said earlier, America is not a Christian nation. Now listen, we have amazing churches. And America has done amazing things. But, but there is no nation that's Christian. I hope you understand that by now. Uh, we have one of the privileges that few people that ever lived has ever had, and that's to vote. Everyone should vote. Everyone should vote with their conscience. Um, everyone's got to muddle through all the information and do what you think is right. Uh, I think we need people in government. I really do. I think at every level of government, maybe there's a calling for you. We have people in our church, they think that's their calling. That's beautiful. We're called to be salt and we're called to be light. The problem is, I don't know if God's going to give us what we need, what we want, or what we deserve. I've never been able to figure that out. You can get balled up in this. You've got the media in the, in the midst of it all. There's so many backstories. There's, you know, the people that came to America, we've been told, came for God. Look, they came for God and money. 
The love of money is the root of all evil. If you don't think the love of money is in politics, we need like a 101 refresher course. They're picking our pockets every single day over cocktails. Uh, it's still the greatest thing going, I believe. I think we got to be salt and light. Here's my marching orders. When Wednesday comes, the day after the election, there still will be lost people that need to be found and reached and comforted. It's like COVID, right? Everybody tells me to be safe. The problem is I'm burying people through a pandemic. Cancer didn't stop. Domestic beatings haven't stopped. Car accidents haven't stopped. People are lost, and they will be lost the day after the election, no matter who wins. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Listen, when he lived, the epic that he lived in, there was universal slavery, there was Roman occupation, there was infanticide, there were no rights for women, and the gospel exploded. Texted two people I know that fled Iran, and we work with Lazarus Yegnazar, who leads Tutu Ministries in Iran. Iran is the fastest growing church in the world, an Islamic republic, where it's unlawful to hold church and do what we're doing right now. The gospel is what we're about. The gospel, at the end of the day, is what saves. Do I love America? Yes, I do. Does America have faults? Yes, she does. Is it the greatest thing going? Yeah, the last time I checked, the reason why we're building a wall is everybody wants to come in. And we're not building a wall because everyone wants to leave. I've looked at people in two services that have come here from other countries. I'm third generation immigrants. It's the land of opportunity. Nations will rise up against nations. War and famine, all this is coming. Jesus said, you need to be about your father's business. That's what it's all about.